0: As they were.
1: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I am a senior fellow at the Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure. To be sitting in for Tony today, and we are grateful that you have decided to join us. A great program today. A couple of reminders before we get there. The website is TonyPerkins.com. If you miss any part of today's show or any show, you can go to TonyPerkins.com and find it. Today on the program, Iowa, as well as several European nations, are lifting all COVID restrictions. Is this a sign of things to come where you live, we'll talk about it. In addition, would the Supreme Court reconsider their decision upholding vaccine mandate requirements for healthcare workers? One group is asking them to, and we'll talk about that today as well. At the end of the program, did the federal government use evangelical leaders to spread COVID propaganda to churches? We'll talk to one journalist who thinks so. But first... The top story today is the Olympics. The 2022 Beijing Olympics are officially underway following this morning's opening ceremony, which commenced when two athletes from China lit the Olympic cauldron. NBC, which is touting itself as, quote, the proud home for all U.S. coverage of the 2022 Winter Olympics, started off their coverage by making mention of the diplomatic boycotts over China's human rights record and genocide of Uyghur Muslims in the Western Xinjiang province. But later in the broadcast, NBC appeared to take China's side.
2: Yeah, it's worth remembering that while Western countries may be boycotting these Olympics over human rights issues, China styles itself as a champion of the developing world, and it has plenty of support in countries from Africa to Latin America, where its investments are building up local economies.
1: Will China use the Olympics as a propaganda tool? Will the United States help them do that? Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Adrian Zenz, who works for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and has been at the forefront of the effort to gather and publish evidence about the mass detention and repression of Uyghurs, as well as other ethnic groups in China that have also been caught up in the Chinese dragnet. Dr. Zenz, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you. Well, first start. Tell us how China stands to benefit from these Olympic Games.
3: Of course, this is a big uh, PR opportunity for China they can showcase their success, their technological prowess, uh, that they're able to do this, able to pull off an event even during the pandemic. Um, Of course, they're doing everything to make it look incredibly smooth, incredibly professional or beautiful, putting on a, a, a wonderful facade that smooths over many, of course, of the very dark things that have increasingly been developing in Xi Jinping's China.
1: Now, I talked in the opening about two athletes who lit the Olympic cauldron there in Beijing. And one of those athletes reportedly has Uyghur roots, which was likely intentional. I want to play NBC's play-by-play response of that moment and then get your response.
4: this moment uh, is quite provocative. It's a statement from the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, to choose an athlete from the Uyghur minority. It is an in-your-face response to those Western nations, including the U.S., ...who have called this Chinese treatment of that group genocide and diplomatically boycotted these games. There will be much
1: discussion about this. What do you think the statement that Xi Jinping is trying to make by including a Uyghur athlete in uh, the opening ceremony?
3: First of all, I think it's a very interesting admission on the side of the Chinese government that they actually have a major PR problem with these Olympics. Uh, they are on the defensive over what they are doing in Xinjiang, and so kind of going on the offensive by picking an athlete from the region um, actually acknowledges that they have that this is a problem that they have a problem, um, maybe in some ways it would be considered smart uh, they will of course want to showcase look <clears throat> we are inclusive, we have uh, all these ethnic uh, groups and China is kind of one large empire of ethnic groups. That's actually also, in in many ways, the ideology here. Um, And I've often argued that even though China China is conducting a genocide in the region, it's not a genocide that actually completely extinguishes, physically extinguishes groups. Rather, China is trying to integrate them, assimilate them, make them docile, in this case also uh, controlling them through biological destruction by mass birth prevention, which qualifies as genocide uh, and affects the population of the group, but to kind of use them for the glory of the Chinese nation. They're being used. It's it's a very colonial thing to do. And uh, to be honest, it's frankly disgusting to use a group that you're brutally suppressing uh, as a PR ploy in the opening ceremony.
1: What is... China's position with respect to the Uyghurs, you you say there that you think their inclusion in the opening ceremony is something of an admission, but is the Chinese government saying, no, we're not doing these things, or uh, we're doing these things and it's okay?
3: I think the Chinese government is basically saying, look, the Uyghurs are benefiting from our government. They're, they're modern. They're becoming more modern. We are uh, helping them to get rid of religious extremism we're developing them, we're doing good things for them. So I think China, For this is, of course, part of China's denial to say they're doing anything negative. They might say, well, we have these training centers, but we're just doing what's necessary to really uh, get these Uyghurs out of their own trouble. And uh, so it's not an admission of what of, of the fact that they're doing horrific atrocities, it's a, it's part of the whitewashing. It's a whitewashing strategy to include an athlete from the Uyghur minority in in a, in a glitzy event such as this.
1: They, de- they do seem to consistently be making the point that what we're doing is actually helpful. Now, in the clip I played there in the opening, NBC gave a nod to China's Belt Road Initiative and said that China has support from the non-Western nations because they see themselves as champions of the developing world. Uh, what's going on there? Is that true? Are they a champion, champion of the developing world?
3: In some way, yes, it is true. Uh, China has quite successfully <clears throat> positioned itself as a leader of, the, uh, of countries who are not satisfied with a U.S. or Western-led world order. And of course, many of these countries are not just developing countries, they're also decidedly authoritarian nations. So it's, it's kind of half true, half false. Uh, yes, there are countries who uh, will look to China if they're not happy with a certain Western dominance or a U.S.-led order. But, of course, everybody knows that this comes for the big price. I mean, there's not an illusion, including among the developing world, about what China stands for. Many countries there, and especially the citizens, realize quite, yeah. quite clearly uh, what, what this entails. So China has successfully portrayed itself as a leader of the Western world because of its economic power, not so much because of its natural appeal.
1: Part of the conversation here in the U.S. is how should we respond to this? And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently gave some advice to the Olympic athletes about how they should respond. Here's what she had to say. I would say to our athletes, you're there
4: to compete. Do not risk incurring the anger of the Chinese government because they are ruthless. I know there is a temptation on the part of some to speak out while they are there. I respect that, but I also worry about what the Chinese government might do to their reputations, to their
1: families. Adrian Zenz, do you think that's good advice?
3: It's a personal decision, but I would speak against this advice because if we want to change history, if we want to stand up for others, uh, we cannot but take risks, and I think it 's a calculated risk to say something because if China really did detain a Western athlete at the Olympics for speaking out, that would create such a new such a global store i mean uh, really it would be such an opportunity uh, i mean of course, people make their personal decisions, but i I, I really think this is i don 't know maybe the, maybe she hopes that She fears that the United States would have to get them out of trouble and she doesn't want to be involved in that. But I think I would I would advise uh, more or less the opposite, not not doing something stupid, of course, but I would advise the opposite. And I think history would justify that.
1: Now, it does seem that if they uh, detained an athlete, for example, that would simply prove the point. It's hard to see how that would benefit China uh, in, in doing so. But in their own ways, the United States is certainly taking its own statement, it has refused to send a diplomatic envoy to these Olympics on behalf of the United States. The United, the United Kingdom has done similarly. Canada other nations. However, we saw uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin there. We see uh, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman who was there. What do you make of who has decided to send a diplomatic envoy and those who have not?
3: It's China's allies and those who benefit from China, who are dependent on it or who benefit from being uh, friends. And of course, Putin does not have a lot of friends outside of authoritarian circles. Uh, The Chinese really are the support that he needs, especially with his warmongering in Eastern Europe. Uh, Many Belt and Road countries, including Saudi Arabia, are quite dependent on China uh, or make themselves dependent on China. Again, Saudi Arabia, a highly, extremely authoritarian country, heavily criticized, but in the Chinese they have a safe ally, one who will never criticize their human rights record. So this is very predictable. We also, I think, see many Central Asian countries have sent uh, leaders, uh, again, testifying to China's influence in these uh, regions. Do you think that
1: there is more the United States should be doing officially during these Olympics to put pressure on China?
3: I think both the United States and other Western governments should be more proactive in speaking out. Uh, The U.S., by comparison, has actually been fairly good at it, although I'm afraid to say that the current administration has its high, high moments and its low moments on the, on the matter. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that the issue of climate protection sometimes has led them to be rather silent. Uh, so I certainly think that they could strategically use, especially this time of the Olympics with there's media attention, to try to, do, to try to do and say more than what's going on now. I think there's an opportunity not to be missed.
1: Now, we've talked a bit about the Uyghurs. We've got about a minute left, but are there other human rights abuses that you think the international community should use this moment to shed light on?
3: Well, you have well-known Chinese dissidents. You have uh, the Hong Kongers. You have the Tibetans. You have the Inner Mongolians. You have uh, spiritual movements, house church Christians, other Muslims. There's a huge around the violations of human rights. But in my opinion, the most, the most visible at the moment, I think, is in Hong Kong. And I think Hong Kong is another place where I think the Western world has very much to substantially let down the Hong Kongs. You know, in front of our eyes, China is brutally squashing them with a police state. And, and I really think we've abandoned the Hong Kongers to their fate way too much. And again, these Olympics would be an opportunity to say more about that.
1: And we hope on on your behalf and behalf of a lot of people there in China, that people will not necessarily follow uh, Speaker Pelosi's advice because we do have to speak up because if we're silent and comfortable, nothing will change. Adrian Zenz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, Iowa's governor says it's time to stop treating COVID as a public health emergency. Is that too early to say or is it long overdue we'll talk about it when we come back stay with us
5: are you struggling to spend consistent time in god's word then join family research council on an exciting journey through the bible frc's two-year bible reading plan helps you to approach daily bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of god and how his word speaks into cultural issues By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's Word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues, this helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the Center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions.
6: At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we created a text subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742.
1: Come back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Yesterday... Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds announced that her state's public health disaster emergency proclamation will expire at 11.59 p.m. on Tuesday, February 15th. In a statement, the Republican governor wrote, quote, We cannot continue to suspend duly enacted laws and treat COVID-19 as a public health emergency indefinitely. After two years, it's no longer feasible or necessary. The flu and other infectious illnesses are part of our everyday lives, and the coronavirus can be managed similarly. State agencies will now manage COVID-19 as part of the normal daily business, end quote. This is similar to what Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said on the floor of the Senate.
2: It's time for the state of emergency to wind down. But disturbingly, whether or not we should trust the science and reclaim normalcy is somehow becoming a partisan question.
1: Other European countries have taken this advice. Most notably, Scandinavian countries have moved to relax COVID regulations following in the footsteps of Denmark. Is it finally time to begin moving on or is it too late? early here with me now to talk about this is dr andrew boston he's an academic clinical trialist and epidemiologist who's currently a research physician the brown university center for primary care and prevention at kent memorial hospital in rhode island dr boston welcome back to the program
7: thanks for having me on
1: so you heard the news about the iowa governor is this the right call Shouldn't we be declaring this?
7: It, it was a very clear um and, and accurate statement, you know, um, where there, there's there's a, there's an important ratio measure. It's called the infection fatality ratio. So it looks at the entire gamut of infections, from severe infections that cause hospitalization, even ICU hospitalization, to, to to infections that are 100% asymptomatic. A person literally wouldn't know that they were infected, other than maybe having a eventually having a positive antibody test. Um, and if you look if you look at that uh, ratio, and then and then on, on, unfortunately on top of that, you know, the the, the numerator for that are the actual deaths uh, f- from the, from the disease, and so now. Uh, with with Omicron, uh, it's been calculated in the UK, which has basically run through its course of the Omicron wave, that the infection fatality ratio is down to 0.06%, which is 6 in 10,000. Um, that's actually half of what the 2017-18 seasonal flu infection fatality ratio is, as calculated by our own uh, CDC. So So we are... We are really reaching an endemic phase, uh, where uh, this is, at least in terms of Omicron, I mean, we can only say where we are now. Um, we're at a phase where this is a truly a a a sort of moderate, you know, uh, flu equivalent, you know, not even not even a, a severe uh, flu outbreak. So um, it, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely appropriate.
1: Now, we also mentioned there are several European nations who are taking similar steps, many of them uh, in Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, taking similar steps. Even France is taking moves to loosen restrictions. How different is the health data across the globe, or Mm. do developments in these countries signal that we could see this very quickly in other countries?
7: Well, you know, we're getting a hint of of, of the of the uh, exaggeration in, in in this country when you know uh, we're starting to see uh, what's so called incidental hospitalizations reported, uh, and the numbers are are staggering. I mean, it, it, again, certainly during this Omicron wave, and and while it might not have been Dr. to Boston, this extent, yes.
1: Very quickly, can you explain what an incidental hospitalization is? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a
7: little long winded. I was about to get to it. Uh, so so it, it means that someone's admitted uh, with, with a positive test. They, they test positive in the hospital. Often they're not even coming with a respiratory complaint. Uh, they, may have, they may have been coming for, uh, for, for, for surgery, for trauma. Um, they have a serious medical admission that has nothing to do with COVID, but they test positive. Um, and because they test positive and because certain PPE requirements are now called in, into place, um, they're lumped together with people that come in with a, with a, with a respiratory syndrome, with a pneumonia, with, with, with at least some upper airway you know, uh, symptoms that drives them into the hospital. Um, and a- across the country, we're seeing rates of this kind of, quote-unquote, incidental admission at 50% or higher. The Jackson Health System, which is the flagship hospital for the Miami area, um, has been tracking for the entire—I uh, would say since around Christmas—and um, and what they're they're up to about. Uh, first of all, the the good thing is that their total hospitalizations related to COVID are, have come down dramatically, signaling again a. Uh, uh, that, 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 we're, that we're past the, the, the peak of the wave and it's rapidly receding from, from Omicron. But they're running about 60% incidental hospitalizations now. Um, the state of Massachusetts, in my neck of the woods, is, is reporting about 50% incidental hospitalizations. Um, this is a widespread phenomenon. And, and what's important is that th- this, this will translate, unfortunately, into an exaggeration of mortality. Um, because once there's a designation, um, any, any any death with a positive test, according to the CDC, uh, can be classified and often will be classified as, as a COVID death for other purposes, reimbursement purposes, for example. Yeah.
1: Dr. Boston, we got about a minute left. What numbers should the government be looking at to declare this over? And do you have any idea of what numbers they are looking at to determine whether they have, will move on from the COVID restrictions?
7: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, typically you'd be looking at at hard metrics like hospitalizations. Again, if we could cut through to the chase and get through these these incidental hospitalizations and focus on true respiratory syndrome hospita- hospitalizations and true respiratory syndrome deaths from COVID, um, I, I, I think I think we'll be there very quickly uh, with the way that that the that the um, that, that that the Omicron wave is, is, is plummeting. Um, and and again, it, it, the, the data that we have from countries that were a little got the Omicron wave a little bit earlier um, is is convincing. They're 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 literally dropping their their restrictions, and and we should we should be there shortly.
1: We certainly hope that we are there shortly. Uh, however, we felt about what's happened in the past. I think everybody's ready to move on. Dr. Boston, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And we will continue to track this. And see if the United States wants to be like Europe in this way. Coming up, you know about the Supreme Court decisions where they held that the vaccine mandate for businesses was unconstitutional. But you might remember that the court held that the healthcare mandate restrictions were still constitutional. Well, one group is asking the Supreme Court to reconsider. We'll talk about why when we come back with the American Family Association right after the break. Stay with us. What
6: is
8: religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Now, if you are in North Carolina or you know someone, who is in North Carolina, encourage you to consider being part of FRC Actions School Board Boot Camp. You know that school boards matter and we need good people on the school boards. Well, we are going to be in North Carolina helping people do just that. I will be there as well. Lots of other good friends will be there Wednesday, February 9th. We will be in Raleigh and on Thursday, February 10th in Charlotte. For more information and to register Check out frcaction.org schools. That's frcaction.org schools. Even if you're not in North Carolina, you can go there for our online tools and resources to help you be part of the school board nearest you. Again, that's frcaction.org schools. Last month, the United States Supreme Court issued mixed rulings in cases challenging two of the Biden administration's COVID shot requirements. They allowed the mandate for certain healthcare workers to go into effect while blocking enforcement of a shots or tests rule for large businesses. Well, AFA Action, a division of the American Family Association, is petitioning the court to revisit the decision and hear the case again. And they're inviting people to sign their petition for the Supreme Court to reconsider the case. Here with me now to talk about this is Walker Wildman. He's the Chief Executive Officer of AFA Action, Vice President of Operations, and Public Policy Analyst at the American Family Association. Walker, welcome to Washington Watch.
2: So glad to be with you today, and I appreciate the work you do at FRC.
1: Well, we appreciate your work as well. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Tell us, what's your biggest concern about the court's decision to uphold the vaccine mandate on healthcare workers?
2: Well, the the the, the ruling here really is built on two falsehoods, two main falsehoods, and they're both very important. Uh, the first one is is that we don't believe that the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, we don't believe the Biden administration has the legal authority. To require a shot or an injection for all healthcare workers across the entire country. We don't believe that the executive branch has the unilateral authority to do such. that's a first premise that's more built into law and the constitution. Uh, the second issue here, which is which can't be overlooked, is that the Supreme Court issued this ruling uh, based on this statement that they included in the ruling. Here's what their ruling said. The Secretary of Health and Human Services determined that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate will, quote, substantially reduce the likelihood that healthcare workers will contract the virus and transmit it to their patients. Well, that's not true. That's not how the shots have been working. As the CDC director and others have said, if you get the shot or the COVID-19 vaccine, as some are calling it, you can still contract covid and you can still spread covid so the entire basis of the executive order the entire basis of the supreme court ruling is built on a medical and scientific falsehood that these shots prevent transmission
1: worker what impact has this mandate been having on the healthcare community
2: well it's been having a very devastating impact on healthcare workers i mean th- these are these are people uh, men and women on the front lines that are uh, day in and day out working, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week to serve uh, patients and hospital systems and medical systems. And this has forced many of them out. I mean, many of them don't want to participate in what is still an experiment. I mean, this is still in the experimental phase. Clinical trials are still ongoing. There are a lot of questions about these injections that we just don't know about yet because they've been rolled out in a very fast manner. Um, so, so, people have had to either quit or be fired in, in a time where, where we need healthcare workers. I mean, we're at a time in our country where we need all the healthcare workers possible uh, to fill the, 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 the slots that we have all across the country. And uh, there was even a story out in California where they fired so many healthcare workers for not wanting to get the experimental shot that they were allowing COVID positive sick nurses to come work in the hospital. Uh, uh, And so it's just completely absurd. And we need to be appreciating our healthcare workers and not firing them because they don't want to do this. That
1: is one of the many strange developments out of all of this is we if you're healthy and haven't been vaccinated, you may not come to work. But if you're sick and have been vaccinated, you may come to work. It doesn't seem to be uh, based in what's best for public policy.
2: What are you asking people to do? Well, our petition right now is to the Supreme Court, so we're asking people to go to afaaction.net, sign the petition for, to, the, to the Supreme Court for them to reconsider this case, because the way they ruled on this case, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but you and, and the folks at FRC probably understand this, um, but the way they ruled, they didn't definitively end this discussion. They, ruled, they did rule in favor of the Biden administration on the uh, healthcare worker mandate, which is what we're talking about here. But they left a, a door open, maybe a small door, but they left a door open for this to be relitigated and come back to the Supreme Court. So we're trying to, to, to uh, influence the Supreme Court to change their mind on this and should this come back up before them to rule a different way. We got about uh, 30 seconds, but when will this end if the
1: Supreme Court doesn't revisit it?
2: Well, I think this is gonna have to be handled at the, at the state level. I mean, the the shots have always been, uh, and vaccines have always been a state issue. They've been in state law, state healthcare policy. Uh, uh, Rarely or ever has has the, the U.S. government mandated something across all 50 states. So this is very unusual, and we're either gonna have to have another case be litigated up to the Supreme Court, or a new president, and that's three years out. So we need another case to make its way through the federal system and back to the Supreme Court, so that this can be ruled illegal and unconstitutional.
1: Walker Wildman, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, did the federal government use evangelical leaders to spread COVID propaganda to churches? We'll talk with one journalist who thinks so when we come back.
9: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications.
0: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph, back home sitting in for Tony today. I'm so glad that you are with us. Late last summer, as the media was reporting on how evangelical Protestants were less likely to have received a COVID shot than other religious groups, the Biden administration sent out National Institutes of Health director, Dr. Francis Collins, to appeal to evangelicals, claiming that the main reason for them not getting the shot was, quote, disinformation. We do still
7: now have this serious issue right now about uh, vaccination hesitancy, and certainly evangelical Christians, and I am one of those, have had uh, a lot of trouble in many instances uh, rolling up their sleeves Lots of reasons for that. Much of it is this disinformation that is so widely spread on the Internet and which has,
1: I think, caused a lot of people to be confused or fearful about what the vaccinations might do to them. Like Dr. Anthony Fauci, the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Collins was presented as someone who represents science. And going further, Dr. Collins was presented to evangelicals as one of us. And as my next guest has noted, quote, the editors, writers, and reporters at Christian organizations didn't question Collins any more than their mainstream counterparts questioned Fauci, end quote. But should they have? Joining me now is the author of the provocative and important article, How the Federal Government Used Evangelical Leaders to Spread COVID Propaganda to Churches. It's Megan Basham from The Daily Wire. Megan, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. I enjoy being here. Well, we are so glad to have you. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start by talking about who Francis Collins is.
4: Right. So Francis Collins is the, uh, he recently departed, he, uh, he, he recently resigned, uh, leader of the National Institutes of Health. So Francis Collins is one of the highest medical officers in our nation, one of the most powerful bureaucrats in our nation. And he was presented to the evangelical world as a man of great integrity, a man you can trust, as you said, someone like us. And he was presented as a man who believes in the sanctity of human life. That is not who Francis Collins is. When you dig into his record, he is somebody who has quite strenuously argued for fetal tissue research, for stem cell research. Stem cell research he has um, declared himself an LGBT ally, an LGBT advocate. He has directed a lot of funding into that. So I think that what we have to say is that he was presented as something that he was not, and that is a basic uh, Bible-believing Christian. Now, I'm not questioning his faith, but I'm saying that his views depart very strongly from your average person in the church pews.
1: Now, your article really does have the receipts with respect to the the things that you just made, and I will commend people to find that if they have questions about uh, where these accusations are coming from. He has a long history uh, in public life and public health, and and much of his work is documented and documentable. Now, given the allegations, which are are serious, for sure, regarding his positions on life, regarding his positions on the LGBT issues, why is it that so many churches, Christian organizations, uh, Christian entities open the doors for him despite his record?
4: Well, you know, part of it is I think he had really deep roots and friendships with a lot of um, powerful figures in evangelicalism. He, uh, If you read my piece, you'll see that he is friends with Rick Warren that they met at Davos, the World Economic Forum that is put on every year for billionaires and heads of state. He is very good friends with uh, leaders like former ERLC ERLC head uh, Russell Moore. He is friends with Tim Keller, with N.T. Wright, and uh, particularly Ed Stetzer, former Christianity Today editor, uh, head of the Wheaton College uh, Billy Graham Center. He is now at Outreach Magazine. So he has a lot of really strong connections with powerful figures in the evangelical world. And what's funny is that this was not um, sort of a secret thing. You had very public secular outlets reporting on Colin saying that he was making the rounds to evangelical institutions, speaking to them trying to convince them not just to get the vaccine. You know, a lot of the focus has been on that. But in fact, he was doing a lot more than that. Part of what he was doing was trying to convince churches that um, masks save lives. Masks are life-saving medical devices. That's a direct quote. He argued for masking children. And then this one gets really complicated. Part of what he sold in Christianity Today webinars and um Partnerships with health and human services videos with Rick Warren was this idea that the lab leak theory was a conspiracy, that it was conspiracy theory and it was sinful for Christians to indulge in that type of discussion, to spread that sort of thing online. And you saw a lot of opinion pieces that went that way, that framed it as a conspiracy theory, as very QAnon. Well, of course, we know today that not only does it turn out that um, the lab leak theory is probably the most likely explanation for the Coronavirus's origins, it also may have been developed with funding from the NIH, gain-of-function funding, which means Francis Collins had a direct interest in suppressing that type of news. We know Anthony Fauci, through leaked emails, helped use media contacts in the secular world to suppress that, and now it looks like Francis Collins may have been doing the same thing with Christian media and uh, captive Christian audiences and churches, as he was urging pastors to combat misinformation and encourage pastors to put out the government's narrative on COVID. And
1: and, and, one of the interesting points in this, and you, you mentioned how the argument he was making was that it was sinful to essentially say that this could be a lab leak theory. Now, how did that play with the audiences that he was speaking to?
4: Well, I mean, you know, it'd be hard to know how are the the people who are reading it or listening to the podcast, how are they responding? I think if you looked on social media, you kind of saw a lot of people pushed back against that and maybe didn't immediately accept that narrative. But the Christian elite media outlets, they didn't push back. They didn't say this is one potential voice we may listen to. This is one medical expert, but there are other medical experts that might have different views on some of these issues. They didn't do that. They pretty much only platformed Francis Collins as the authority that we should all look to because they said, he's a Christian brother. He believes in the sanctity of life. He's like you. So you can trust this guy. You can trust that he's giving you the real information. So um, I I think a lot of people did feel somewhat shamed. I think they went, oh gosh, you know, maybe my aunt posted something on the conspiracy the conspiracy of the lab leak theory. And they would maybe feel bad that they indulged in that. So there was also this sense of sort of heaping shame on average people for discussing what was a very reasonable hypothesis.
1: Now, of course, these issues, whether it's should you get the vaccine, should you wear a mask, have been hotly contested uh, since the beginning. We spent two years uh, debating these things. Is there a sense that the outlets that platformed Dr. Collins, was this just a pastor who had that particular conviction? This is somebody who was going to... um, agree with him from the federal government and give his belief that you should get vaccines credibility? Or were these people who were generally presenting information, allowing people on a, with a different perspective to speak? Or were they really just using him to kind of encourage the position that they appeared to have?
4: You know, I can't say for sure on that. My impression as I was doing this reporting was that the NIH was reaching out to them. So part of what you see as you look into the story is Ed Stetzer, for example, at Wheaton, at the Billy Graham Center, he directly said that we partnered with the CDC and the NIH. So my impression of that was that this was the federal government coming to them and saying, can we use your pulpits? Can we use your platforms? And part of the reason is when you listen to the podcasts and the articles that I linked to in the article, Francis Collins was very clear. He said, I am exhorting you pastors please get your church members to do this. Please get your church members, not just to get vaccinated, but get your church members to uh, stop fighting back against COVID lockdowns. You know, a lot of these, for example, an interview that he did with Timothy Keller, they sort of sneered at the churches that were starting to meet again. They called them the bad and ugly, good, bad and ugly responses to coronavirus lockdowns. Uh, His his segment with N.T. Wright, they, they kind of made fun of churches that were meeting, saying that these are people who believe that Jesus is my vaccine, or this, that Satan can't get into my church. So I, I would say there was agreement there, but it was also very much using it to spread the ideas that the federal government was already telling all of us. I mean, we can remember, right, that we were being told, gosh, we know it's hard for you churches, but you shouldn't meet. We know it's a struggle for kids in school, but they should just have to wear those masks because that's following the science. Today, we know that's not following the science, that you know these are largely debatable issues. And, and I would say they're still debatable issues. But the point was that they were matters of Christian liberty. They were matters that could have been left to individual conscience. And that wasn't what happened. We were told that this is loving your neighbor. This is a, a, one leader directly said that wearing a mask is following Jesus. So we can see a lot of legalism and heaping of um, kind of a lot of law on people's shoulders in this.
1: Yeah, to that point, um, whether this is following Jesus, whether this is loving your neighbor, we, know, we now have the benefit of hindsight in some things we've learned. We haven't learned everything, but we've learned right. some things. And is there at all—what would you say to the allegation that, well— had the vaccines worked like they were supposed to and had masks worked like they were supposed to, they would have actually, uh, they may have saved more lives than they ended up saving. Um, Would that have changed the way you, uh, we evaluate this looking back that we would, we would all agree. Yeah. It is loving your neighbor. If it was the Ebola virus and stop people from, you know, 50% of the people who get it from dying.
4: Well, you know, not really, because here's the point is that it was very early on. These were a lot of, um, to borrow the Donald Rumsfeld statement, that these were a lot of unknown knowns and a lot of unknown unknowns. So there's a lot of things that we did not know. And there should have been some humility in that. There should have been some pause and go, look, we're gonna pursue the best policies because we believe right now that these are the best health policies, but this is evolving information. You didn't need to link it to, is it sinful or not sinful? You didn't need to link it to um, this sort of spiritual maturity. And that's what you really saw. It was a measure of how good of a Christian are you if you're not following these rules or forget not even following them. How good of a Christian are you if you're discussing them? If you're discussing them amongst your friends, well, then you're spreading around conspiracy theories. And that was kind of the main angle of the story was that uh, there was just no grace there was from a journalistic point of view from a lot of these christian outlets there wasn't even any uh, reporterly curiosity to go well what might say a- another medical expert think on this subject because even way back then there were a lot of really credentialed medical experts saying we're not so sure about this mask thing we don't know that cloth masks the way they're worn really have much effect Today, we're finding out that, hey, actually, there might have been a reason to listen to some of those other experts. So I, I think from the beginning, if you had just added a little humility to the discussion, a little like, we're not sure, maybe we should open the discussion, maybe we should follow Proverbs and, uh, and have many counselors. Maybe we should follow that idea of the first person to state, to, to state his case seems right until another person comes along and cross-examines it. The federal government, through Francis Collins, was trying to shut down that cross-examination process. And these Christian outlets and these Christian elite figures helped them do that.
1: We're talking to Megan Basham from The Daily Wire. And Megan, have any of these, and again, we're, we're... We're Monday morning quarterback a little bit, but we're still looking forward. And you talk about how the facts have come in and and things are different now. Have any of the people who platformed Dr. Collins who really were aggressive, in some cases uh, religiously aggressive about the (laughs) fact that people needed to wear masks, um, get vaccinated? Has there been any reconsideration from some of these voices where they look back and say, yeah, maybe that wasn't exactly the right approach to take?
4: Well, and so that's part of this story that's really disturbing is that no, there hasn't been any of that. And not only has there not been any of that, things that they now know that they were directly wrong on, like allowing Francis Collins to sort of spread this notion that it was a conspiracy theory that the COVID might've originated in a lab. Those articles have just disappeared. Uh, And as a longtime reporter, I can tell you, that's not journalistically ethical to just make an article go away with no mention, no editor's note to just pretend that it didn't exist. Turned out you could still get it on a web archive. And so I go and I dig up these articles and I go, so they know, they clearly know that they were wrong to have put that in the realm of conspiracy theory, but instead of acknowledging it, they've just made the articles disappear. I tried to call the men that I talked about in this article, I tried to call the men that platformed Francis Collins and who I quote, to ask if they've had changed views, if they've shifted their thinking at all none of them would talk to me. None of them would respond. Um, a couple got back their assistance and just said, I, I can't answer you right now. Some never responded at all. So I think that's part of the problem is that the tendency at that level is to just sort of wait it out and hope that it goes away. And that's not leadership.
1: Megan, what's the lesson for you in all of this?
4: Really the lesson for me, and I kind of go back to that proverb saying is, look i wouldn't have said that i know I, I i was very sort of agnostic on masks i wasn't sure either and i think all of us sort of felt that way and so that was part of why you go that that's why you want that many counselors that why, that's why you don't look to one authoritative figure to give you every medical pronouncement that you should be looking for i mean yes we want to obey our government and we want to live peaceably and follow laws but but we don't have to be simple-minded And that was kind of what they were asking us to do, is to be simple-minded and just blindly follow one man's word. And it turns out that that wasn't a great guy to be following his word. Um, He has a pretty complicated record.
1: The article is How the Federal Government Used Evangelical Leaders to Spread COVID Propaganda to Churches. The author is Megan Basham from The Daily Wire. Megan, thank you so much for taking some time today and thank you for your hard work on this. It is an important conversation. Appreciate you very much.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: And that is the program we have for today, folks. We are glad that you are with us. This is not the end of the word on this, but humility is called for, reflection is called for because we have imperfect knowledge all the time and we're always learning. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Remember, fear God at one That's one